Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends. My guest today is amazing tuba player, Jim Self. Jim Self is one of the most distinguished tuba players in the world and a true legend among LA studio musicians. In a career spanning four decades, he performed in 1500 film and television scores. With John Williams, Jim has performed in more than 40 movies and can be heard playing solos in such scores as Home Alone, Hook and Jurassic Park. Above all, he was the voice of the mothership in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He played tuba in many other John Williams scores recorded in LA, including the recent Star Wars trilogy made by Disney. Jim Self has performed solos with many other top composers, including James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith, James Newton Howard, John Dabney, and Randy Newman. He's also a fine composer and recorded many albums featuring his own brilliant compositions and arrangements. His most recent album, The Light Fantastic, features his own arrangement for tuba and guitar of John Williams' Moonlight from the film score of Sabrina. conversation, Jim talks about his brilliant career as a studio musician and his many recordings with John Williams, including the iconic solos on Home Alone, Jurassic Park and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. very happy to have here with me a uh, very talented, superb musicians from Los Angeles, Mr. James Self. Thank you for being here with us with the Legacy of John Williams podcast, James. My pleasure, Maurizio. You have a very rich and fantastic career as a studio musician and you performed in so many film and television scores over your 40 plus years career as a studio musician. And, but I'd love to, to start talking about your, a little bit about your musical background and formation. So uh, when did you pick exactly 
tuba as your instrument to to, to learn. Oh, when I, I was 13 years old in a junior high school band. I was a guitar player first. They needed a, a tuba, so they got an old helicon and asked me to play it. I did. And then I, uh, from a small town in Pennsylvania called Oil City, where the first oil well in the world was. Anyway, uh, in high school, I didn't know what what to do, I like music more than anything. So I went to be a band director at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which was a, a reasonably close uh, state university. And I got my bachelor's degree there in music ed. I was gonna be a teacher, but by just by good good fortune, I went to a concert of the army band when I around the time I was graduating. And I asked if there was an opening and they said, yes, come down and audition. And I did. And I got into the U.S. Army Band during Vietnam, which was otherwise I could have gone into the infantry and not be, may not be here today. It was um, it, it, all of a sudden I became a player, a professional player that, that I hadn't because those were great bands. And it was full of great, other great tuba players at the time. So that was the beginning of my uh, playing. And later on, I, I got my master's degree there at Catholic University. While I was in the army, by the way, and they paid for it. <laughs> and then I freelanced around Washington, D.C. for a year or so with the National Symphony and other things. And I uh, was on the road and I, I got a, well, I got a call from the University of Tennessee, who, where I visited on the, when I was on the road with a band playing bass. And uh, they needed a tuba player and uh, they hired me over the phone. <laughs> For an assistant professorship, and I was there for five years, hmm. Knoxville, Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay. And then I tried to get out of there because I really wanted to get back to a better musical environment, a big city. So I started going to do a doctorate at USC in Los Angeles. Okay. And that's that's and then my career once I came out here, it just went pretty good. So becoming a studio musician was something that you know happened just on the way. Or was it something that you were kind of looking at, you know, that could be something up your alley or something that interested you? Well, it was up my alley in a way because, and uh, yes, I had an ulterior motives to come out here and break in. In the 1970s, the, the uh, studio business was very happening. And my teacher, Tommy Johnson, yeah. a great tuba player, uh, yes. was uh, the top guy and he couldn't do all the work. So... He would send me on jobs, and before long, I started getting my own accounts, and uh, it was very busy for many years. And then we had a strike in 1980, and that slowed things down for a few years. But then I got real busy in the movies. You, you were talking about Tommy Johnson. I want to to ask a little bit about him because, you know, you are part of that generation uh, right after the great American tuba players like uh, Roger Bobo or Harvey Phillips. Uh, and of course, Tommy Johnson, I know all these guys probably changed in a way the perception of the instrument. You know, tuba playing was seen as something like, you know, okay, military bands probably, but always seen as this kind of basso buffo if you know what I mean, that was given for decades in, in that uh, specific environment. So uh, about Tommy, when you started with him at USC, uh, he was already revered at that as a master of the instrument. And yeah. so how important was his mentorship for your career? And and, and did you oh, look well, at him as a role model in some way? Uh, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. But the teachers I studied with, primary teachers, were Harvey Phillips in New York City, 
while I was in the Army band, and after that, a bit, and then Tommy in Los Angeles, who was the top guy here. Now, Roger Bobo was also in the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and he was a great player, too. And uh, so they set the standard, those three guys, in a way, for the music tuba playing in America, along with Arnold Jacobs of the uh, Chicago Symphony at the time. Yeah. But everybody else was, I mean, those guys were, and I got to study with them, I, uh, mostly Tommy and uh, Harvey. Those guys were into the, a lot of the commercial side of the, of the music business. And as a bass player and as a guitar player and other and writer and all kinds of stuff, I, I was too. So I was sort of, I had the skills, I guess you'd call it, and, and some any experience. When I came here, I was about 30 years old, so I was not a kid. But I did finish my doctorate, though, and then I started really getting a lot of work, and uh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Tommy was, uh, he changed the studio business. He was the first guy to come along that was what I call a real virtuoso on the tuba. He, he, he played solos, he had a style, and he had a, a, a lot of technique. It was very clean, very perfect player. Uh, so I sat next to him many times on two tuba jobs, and then, of course, we taught a master class at USC for 30 years every Monday night, too. So we were very tight for a long time, and unfortunately, he died way too young. But I put him up with with those other three guys as the greatest tuba players. And Bill Bell before them all. He was the teacher of Harvey and, some, and others. But, but um, yeah, they were the people that changed the world in a way, in the tuba world. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And then brought them to Roger Bobo and, and Bob Tucci and uh, Mel Culbertson brought all that stuff to Europe. They became professors over there and taught a lot of European tuba players and other guys from Japan came over here. And so the tuba thing has exploded. It's great, great players in Europe now. So let's go to 1977, when you ended up being picked on for the recording of Close Encounters of the Third Kind by John Williams. Uh, I think Tommy was there too, or was or was it because... It's kind of a complicated story. But okay, so tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, it's also one of the, what I call a studio legend kind of a situation. It was actually 1976, June 1976. Okay. And, and I get a call from Warner Brothers, a contractor, to come and do a session with uh, John Williams. And uh, I I may have worked for him before. I think I did a second tuba to Tommy on one or two films or as a sub maybe. But anyway, Tommy was on vacation in Hawaii. It was one of those rare things, and that he never, rarely took vacations. <laughs> and he really almost never did after that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so I got the call, and I said yes, of course. And I went over to Warner Brothers. There were four people there, plus an engineer. There was uh, John Williams, Steven Spielberg, and then four players, excuse me. Uh, it's not a tuba solo, but tuba and contrabassoon in unison. And then there's the oboe too, right? The oboes, there were two oboes. They played in unison. They were the voice of the earth. They and are, we, we were the voice of the mothership. 
Exactly. And when, that's why it doesn't sound like it's almost sound electronic, the tuba, but it's if you think about mixing a contrabassoon, it gives it a raspy sound. So uh, my real sound wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> day there John tried a bunch of different things we experimented with a whole lot of stuff and it was sort of he was sort of writing on the fly if you will and uh, we came out it was all recorded by the way this is called pre-score yes that was because it was used on set during the filming right exactly and what they had to have was they had to have everything lined up they had to, because if you remember the computer that was in the movie had different colored lights and certain notes triggered the uh, the lights, like a pink light would be triggered by an A-flat or something like that. So they made the film, and and they tried to make different versions of this with Tommy Johnson, by the way, and, and even one with trumpet, I believe. And anyway, it didn't work out, I guess. And, and Tommy and I went about it for years, wondering who was the tuba player. But, but one day I was working down at the music center, and I was playing with the opera or something. And John Williams was there and I saw him and he says, hey, Jim, he says, I just want to let you know that uh, they use your version. And uh, he felt, he said he felt sorry for Tommy because Tommy was his principal tuba at the time. But so I had it from the horse's mouth that it was me. And, and uh, of course I have the music and it's exactly what we play. things and then the film was made the next year the, the scoring of the or, of the orchestra was done in the spring of 77 it was right after star wars i mean he was come coming back from london i guess after finishing star wars exactly then and he jumped off on close encounters and he had used three tubas on that tommy me and another fellow who was a uh, mostly a bass player there were a lot of tuba players in town in those days I think Roger Bobo may have worked a day or two on that, that those recordings too. Was I don't know, but Tommy and I did pretty much all of it.
probably know more than I do. Uh, both of them were nominated for Academy Award for music. And yes. it lost to Star Wars. Personally, I think it's a better score. And uh, I'm I'm a little bit, always been a little bit jealous of the uh, <laughs> Star Wars films. They were done in London. Yes. And a great orchestra, the London Symphony. But I wanted to be playing those. <laughs> that happened many years later, actually, <laughs> with, the, with the recent ones. Uh, did you play also in the, the Force Awakens? The seventh I time? worked a little bit. Now, in 2015, uh, Disney, ABC bought the rights to Star Wars and they, they brought them back here to record. And they recorded uh, seven, eight, and nine here once every two years, I believe it was. Yes. And, by, and at the same time, John Williams changed all his principal brass, including me. And they asked me if I'd play second tuba if necessary. And I said yes. Okay. And so I did play some second tuba on all three of those movies with Doug Tornquist, who's my former student and yes. great, great player. The studio business has been that way always. It's been, you're there because somebody else recommends you. You can't do a job and the contractor calls up and goes, well, who can you recommend, you know? Because they don't know all the tuba players or they don't know all the violins or whatever. So the concertmaster will take care of the violins and so on. Yeah. So uh, there is some power in that, I guess. And although I've not abused it, I hope, I, but I have favored Doug a lot. Mm-hmm. And Tommy, of course, favored me. And uh, the business is not nearly what it used to be, by the way. But yeah, because of so many reasons. But, but uh, that's sort of the close encounter story. And then Tommy was his player for several more years. Yeah, I subbed a lot on those films, and I uh, played second tuba to him on some different films. And uh, can't remember which ones they were right now. I probably could look at them. Figure it out. But. I have a quite a long list, and you played on, on almost 40 movies with John. Me? Yes. Yeah, I, I know I did. And, and I, 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 I sort of remember most, I remember all of them in a way, but I don't remember exactly what day I was there, mm-hmm. or particularly the ones that I would sub for Tommy. Or So that was in about in 1990. Uh, that's when my great break came with uh, John. Uh, I have a, uh, I play jazz and I play uh, uh, very much in the commercial style. Mm-hmm. So John Williams, by the way, great good jazz pianist. Oh well, yes, and arranger. But um, and he was a studio musician too. He was. Uh, he, he grew up in L.A. and right out of high school, he became a writer and a piano player in the studios. And his dad was a studio percussionist. Right. Brothers were studio percussionists. Right. <clears throat> anyway, uh, they called me to do a movie called Home Alone, which was a huge hit, as you know, and played ubiquitously all over the world all the time. But you have some large solos over there. It was full of tuba solos. Yeah. Kind of jazzy. And I guess John, by that time, had heard I had probably three or four CDs out there of my own jazz playing and other yeah. classical playing, too. And so he and I usually gave him copies or sent them to him or something. So he, I knew he knew my music, my mm-hmm. playing. So he hired me for that. And uh, it was uh, well, a huge break because it was full of tuba songs.
two was full of even more tuba solos. And I was then, I was just tuba player for another 25 years, principal. awkward thing with Tommy Johnson because but that's the way it goes you know things change all these great players that played for him were replaced at one time or another including uh, great Vince DeRosa he was a great uh, horn player and he was replaced and nobody knows except one thing that tends to be pretty constant in the studio business in Los Angeles is don't get old <laughs> But I had uh, 25 great years with him, and I did all his films that he did in Los Angeles. Yes. I have a couple of questions about a, a few movies uh, you, you, you did. But before uh, asking those questions, I want to ask you, what were your first impressions of when you worked with him the first times? I mean, was there something uh, different or specific about the way he treats musician that caught your attention or his approach to music making in general? Before I start anything, I want to say about John Williams, and I'll say more later, but I think he's the greatest living musician in the planet, period. He does so much so well, and he's so ubiquitous. He's everywhere. His music is played every second of every day in movies or in records or in concerts. You know, there's been nobody like him. John is a gentleman. He's a a beautiful person in every way. I mean, he's polite and gentle with everybody. He's easily the best person on the podium of anybody. Most film composers are terrible conductors. Often they hire other people to conduct the session and they stay in the booth and, and make musical choices. But John, having been at the Boston Symphony for a few years as the Boston Pops conductor, had some good chops, conducting chops. And so he was good that way. Plus, the way he did things, he was more thorough than most film composers. Now, he obviously, with Steven Spielberg and uh, his other clients, he had unlimited budgets, I imagine. So he could take time. So he would rehearse more carefully than most people would and uh, insist sometimes on not, not even using click tracks and stuff so he could... Uh, Play, conduct with the film, which is kind of an old-fashioned way yeah. of doing it. But uh, he was good at it. And then he would then he'd make tapes. And then by after, after having maybe three rehearsals or something on something, he would just have to make a couple tapes and he'd be happy. Yeah. One thing about John is there were rhythm section players on a few films because oh, most of the source music, they call it, with like a jazz piece or something in the background. Uh -huh. would be done on a separate session with a certain instrument, you know. Mm -hmm. But usually everything was live with John, which is very refreshing. 
because these days so much of it is overdubbing uh, yes. synth tracks and it just it's not musically fun it's a completely different approach yes the other thing about john is he's a master orchestrator he knows the orchestra better than just about anybody i know and i'm talking about a lot of more you know famous classical musicians don't have his understanding of the orchestra i learned a lot in my own composition from him yeah that's that's very interesting because especially if you look at uh, his way to write for brass and especially tuba it seems to me that he's not just using tuba as a color you know or to oh, no. just to enrich the texture or to add you know volume and power but it seems that he looks for for the specific personality of the that the instruments can bring to maybe to a to a, to a section to to a scene especially that's true and for most of those years his engineer was Sean Murphy. Yeah. He's a very close friend of mine, also a tuba player. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a tuba player when he was young. And uh, he's recorded some of my solo albums even, but he got the best sound of me. The way he placed the mic where he did. By the way, like I said, he would record the whole hundred musicians in the same room. So Sean was had it all mixed in a way before they even made a take. You know what I mean? During the rehearsals, he had everything balanced out and, and the tuba always cut through. John liked the tuba as a solo instrument and wrote quite a few solos for me over the years. And uh, he and, so, and Tommy too, before me, Roger Bobo did a film called Fitzwillie. Oh, it was him with, uh, with Fitzwillie? Roger Bobo. Oh, fantastic. Big tuba solo. Yeah, he, yeah. I think that was the first time he used it as a solo instrument in the movies. <laughs>
hit, hit back in the 60s, he wrote a, uh, a uh, in fact, we, we reproduced it. It was uh, My Fair Lady, oh, yes. an album, My Fair Lady, that was done with the studio orchestra. With a range of jazz combo, yeah. And we re re replicated that here in Los Angeles a couple times in uh, recent years and uh, had a tuba in it. about every aspect okay there were other great writers he's from a, a tradition of the great film people and the other great one in town i thought at the time was uh, jerry goldsmith yes with whom you played also a lot of i played a lot with him yep i sure did and i uh, had some cool things to play for him too and uh, especially Dennis the Menace film, which is packed full of tuba solos. Yes. <laughs> it was together with a harmonica. Was that Tommy Morgan on, on harmonica? Yeah, on sure. yeah, it was Tommy, sure, for sure. Yeah, and that was another one of those lucky things. Tommy was out of town recording Tubby the Tuba in Florida, and I got to call for you. <laughs> but the other biggest thing I ever did as far as solos in a movie. Yeah, there are many, many tuba solos in Dennis the Menace. Very fun music, very quick, like Prokofiev. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, the other guys that liked the tuba a lot were uh, who I got to be principal for were James Warner. Oh, yes. Tons of tuba solos, super hard stuff. Debney and James Newton Howard. I was their principal tuba for many years, all those guys. When I ever went to work, I had to sort of put on my thinking cap because you never know. We never saw the music ahead of time. So That's the thing that other of your studio musician colleagues told me, the, the ones that I spoke to recently. Yeah. And the fact that it's so amazing because you never see the music in advance. So you, you arrive at the studio in the morning, you open up the book and maybe you had very huge, large solo that you have to play. Okay, so <laughs> how do you deal with that kind of pressure? I mean, especially with John Williams that I guess expects a lot from, from you. Yeah, he does. You and you know, when you're sitting there with those hundred musicians, uh, they are the best of the best is all I can say. Every player from the principal oboe down to the, the, the snare drummer are, are the best in town. You know, I mean, John always got the best. It was the orchestra. And to be part of that was a, a really a great honor in my life. But I have one special story about the movie Hook. We went several days work on it, of course. And I went there for a double section, a session over at MGM. It's called Sony now. Mm -hmm. In recent years, that's what John preferred recording there. I got there and opened up the book. Wasn't too much to do. And, uh, you know, tuba parts are often very sparse, or there are a lot of notes playing with the section or, you know, chase scenes and stuff mm -hmm. like that, lots of odd meters. And you have to be really sharp reading, sight reading stuff, mm -hmm. okay? These days they record even the first rehearsal, so you better be on your toes, just in case they might get some good pieces from it, you know, now they can edit everything. Mm -hmm. So we went out to lunch, and trombones and tuba, which we did almost every time we were working together. I came back at two o'clock and I opened up my book and there was a new cue in there. It was this tuba solo. I really didn't have time to look at it. It was high and chromatic, about eight bars long. I, all I could do was, I didn't have time to like noodle around with it or anything. You don't, plus you, don't, you don't really do that much in the studio. You don't want to embarrass yourself in front of everybody else. So <laughs> if you're practicing. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he calls it up first in the afternoon. They'd just been copied and put on our stand that during lunchtime. And uh, so it was about 40 bars rest, nothing to play. And then a tuba solo. <laughs> One of the hardest things they ever played for him, to be honest. Uh, although, you know, it was, I didn't just stumble on it in the first rehearsal or so, but we made two or three takes on it and it, and it was, it came off great. And 
that's it's fantastic. I mean, so as you said, so chromatic, very comical, but not you know not a parody, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I guess also finding that right balance in, in interpretation, not just you know yeah. delivering a very good performance, but also you know understanding what you're playing. Take your cue off of the other players around you, you know, and uh, uh, as far as the groove, I would say, you know, the rhythmic thing. And, and uh, so that was always one of my strong points is picking up on that stuff always in my career. And, and speaking of that, uh, I think the other movie where you had, I guess, a lot to play was Jurassic Park. I had a lot to play. I had a couple solos in the movie. And uh, I don't know whether you know the, the story of the last, very last notes in the movie. No, tell me about it. Well, it's a tuba solo, I believe. There may be French horn in there, I don't know, but I think it's a tuba solo. It's rather high, not too high, top of the bass staff. And it, it, the pitches are ba da da da. Kind of very dissonant interval. Well, what it is, it's a tritone, and it happens three times and gets softer each time. Okay, and that's the very end of the of the credits and everything after a huge, you know, John's end credits were fantastic. And of course, they had long credits as a reason. They were long cues. Anyway, so the movie ends with those three tritones, if you will, and you know what that meant. I didn't realize at the time. It says, there's going to be a sequel. <laughs> Leave the door open. <laughs> Tritone is is a uh, question mark. And that's what, I, and I think that's what it meant, although nobody ever told me that. But <laughs> because at the time, you didn't know whether there was going to be a, another one or not. There were a couple more. He, he just did one more. But do you remember if on Jurassic Park, did you play also Chimbasso? Because I see very different kind of low brass sounds in that score. Do you remember if you also put out some other uh, different kind of tubas, probably, or something like that? I don't think, to be very honest, although I played tons of movies with Jim Basso. Okay. Tons of them. I was the first to do it in the movies, and I was the 
all my career, it became, it's a lot of extra money, 50% more money when you have a double. So I always had it with me. But I don't believe John ever wrote for the Chimbasso. I don't think he liked it. He may have written for contrabass trombone because the trombone players often played those instruments. But he, he, most of his writing was for what we call a standard orchestra. Okay. Then, then he could make a, a, a symphony concert version of that theme or whatever. You know what I mean? Yes. And so most of, most of the stuff he wrote could be played by a regular symphony orchestra. So he didn't usually have more than four trombones and a tuba. And uh, sometimes there would be extra tubas or there'd be, you know, different things he, he liked. But yeah, maybe when the movie called for some very strong sound. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. the other movie I think is uh, War of the Worlds by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He had a very, very large brass section in that film, I think. Yeah, that was a great score. It is. Great score. And I remember that movie from the original in 1953. Right, true. When yeah. I was a boy, I couldn't sleep for a year. <laughs> I was scared of Martians. <laughs> But, and I told Spielberg that right near the beginning of that film. I said, I said Stephen, I, I have memories of this when I was a boy. And he says, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I do have another kind of cool anecdote about John. Tell me about it. I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but uh, I'll tell you how good his ears are, okay? Well, we finished this one cue. The trombones, were, bass trombones were down on low Cs. And, and just on a lark, I play a pedal C, an octave lower on the tuba. And uh, I think it was in a rehearsal. It wasn't in a tape. But immediately he says, don't do that, Jim. Just a few words. He, he knew what he wanted. He didn't want anybody to add an octave to something or to in any way play what he didn't write. He was super picky and uh, more than any other composer I know. But anyway, I didn't do it again, I promise you. <laughs> he has a certain gravitas about him on sessions, uh, even though he's very polite and wonderful and off, off the podium and even on the podium. It's just that it's, he's serious and his time is money and uh, they're very, you know, they're trying to get this complicated stuff done and he doesn't want any, nobody talks. You don't hear people chattering. Or, yeah. It seems that he gets a lot of respect from, from the band. Oh, yeah. Probably because uh, he, he was from the band, I mean, himself, as we right. were telling before. He knows the environment, he knows the mentality of the student musician, so he knows exactly. how to interact with you, with you guys. But at the same time, it also speaks about probably the quality of the music. When you are given something very uh, satisfactory to perform, something very joyful to perform, like you said, uh, it probably uh, it pushes you into bringing more, into bringing you know, your best, really. Yes, and uh, you know, I'm one of these guys, at least in recent years, I've been always on a diet 
and I would carry my lunch with me in recent years. And uh, John would always eat a, a bag lunch too, sitting there. And he and I had lots of chats about, uh, and it was very nice and personable. And I, I was getting into composition and he helped, he gave me some great ideas about that. And so he was always just, I, I spent probably a dozen lunches with him over the years, you know, just during the lunch hour, just sat there and ate our bag lunch. He chatted about stuff. He was always nice to me, really nice. I was lucky also to play, or not films with him, he recorded some albums. Oh, yes. Of uh, symphonic music, uh, including uh, some really challenging music. Uh, we did a cello concerto, I think, with uh, Yo-Yo Ma. Oh, yes. Yeah, and then he did uh, uh, a lot of other concert music. I remember we did that Happy Birthday to Seijay Ozawa that he wrote. It was a set of variations on Happy Birthday. Oh, yes. With each yes. section playing, you know, percussion, brass, woodwinds, and strings. And very hard, by the way. And he wrote other things that were quite challenging that I've had to play in symphony concerts after that too, which was very cool music, of course. He was, I think, and he wrote a tuba concerto. Yes, I wanted to ask about that because I saw a picture on your website uh, with you and John together backstage right. after or before performing the tuba concerto. So tell me about that experience. Well, he wrote the concerto in the late 80s when he was with the Boston Pops. And Chester Smith, who was the tuba player of that orchestra, was a great player. He and I had been in the Army band together before oh, really? that. Wow. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he was written for Chester, and Chester played the premieres of it and so on. And uh, it's a very hard piece. Hmm. And uh, John and I talked about it a lot. Even at one point asked me if I might consider recording it. Well, wow. to be quite honest, of course I said yes, but he... Either he didn't get around to it, but I'm glad he didn't because it's super hard, okay? Mm. And there's so many great young players out there now. And uh, at first, uh, you you know, you couldn't just take somebody's music like that and record it, but somebody did. And somebody went out and recorded John's concerto. Not very well, by the way. And then several other people did it after that. So I guess he didn't worry about getting copyright protection or whatever on it. Mm. But anyway, I played a Pacific Symphony one of my jobs. And John was, was instrumental in uh, Carl St. Clair, our conductor, getting that job. And he had worked with him in Boston. And uh, so it was, I think, the 25th anniversary of the symphony or something. 
they had a concert and it, half of it was John conducting and half of it was Carl Sinclair. And it featured, along with some of John's music and other classical pieces, the two of them conducted half the program. Usually one would go off stage, the other would come back on, that kind of thing. And he featured four of the principal players in the orchestra on uh, solos. And the clarinet player played a movement of the Mozart and the uh, violinist played, uh, I can't remember, a movement of, I don't know, Tchaikovsky or something. And uh, they asked me to play a movement of the John Williams Duke Concerto. Not the whole piece, thank God, because it's super hard. But it was just the last movement, which is not easy. Which is the fast one, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. very, very fast. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I got it together pretty good. Played it well on two or three concerts we had down there. And, uh, and, and he and I had dressing rooms right next to each other. So we had a lot of dead time in the concert. We, he just had his door open all the time. He was welcoming. And we talked about composition, which I was into pretty heavy by that time and somewhat influenced by his writing. And uh, anyway, uh, so I got to do that third movement and it came off well and got a good picture, like you said. And later on, or was it, I think it was later on, that he asked, he, I got a call and it said, John would like you to come over to his studio over at Amblin, over at Universal Studios and work with him on, on the tuba concerto. So it, I did. What he was doing was preparing the tuba part for publication with the piano version. And I don't know whether you know anything about the concerto or not, but it was, he was not happy with the concerto. Oh, really? He still may not be. I don't know. He was always ambivalent about it. He thought he over-orchestrated it. Mm. And it is pretty thickly orchestrated. There's no question about that. And when you have a tuba solo, you have to have a lot of room for the tuba to cut through. You can't have a whole lot of other instruments down in the same register. Yeah. You won't hear the, you know, in a recording or ideal concert hall, you can. But, so he did some revisions to it. The original version that Chester Smith played was uh, was sort of out there in manuscript for several years, but then he did a redo of it. He redid the whole ending of the, of the thing and he simplified it as far as the strings and the other instruments that were not, uh, and so it's a little, little bit different. It's not much different in length. I think it's almost the same, but he just reorchestrated it. The texture, no. And that's the version that people play mostly these days. And, uh, and I, but I played the new version also, but he asked me to come over and edit the tuba part. Another uh, player told me a similar story about, uh, yes, it was uh, Cecilia Tsan, the cellist, uh, who had the pleasure of, of working with him on his pieces from Memoirs of a Geisha. He yeah. prepared a few pieces for cello and piano, a reduction of the main themes. And it seems to me that he's he's not he's attached to his music, but he's very open about it. I mean, he he's open to change, to you know, to improve. He is. In fact, one time I asked him, Mrs. John, I says, do you ever read rewrite your music? And well, of course, he did in that piece uh, part of it. He says. All the time. He says he's never happy. He's never happy with what he writes. So uh, that, that was kind of revealing because uh, as a young composer, or I wasn't young, but a, a new composer, it, it kind of gave me some confidence because I throw stuff out too, you know, and I revise things. But I tend to be, once it's done, I don't go back to it. But uh, anyway, um, I went over there and spent a few hours with him. We edited the tuba part, which basically was for articulation. 
tonguing and slurring and so on. And uh, and that's what's in the published version. So all the young tuba players that play this thing all over the world now, have, uh, they can blame me if it doesn't <laughs> play well on their tuba. <laughs> instrument in the concerto in a very very strange way i mean there's a lot of high notes sometimes it kind of sounds like a horn and not a tuba yeah, yeah. you know what i mean it's it's very difficult and also it's also lyrical oh yeah you know it's not just it's very you have these beautiful long lines and very melodic very lyrical is one of the very few concertos for tuba that is in the repertoire. I mean, there's Vaughn Williams. Yeah. And what else? I mean, it's become quite a standard piece. Now, pretty, I, I teach college level tuba players and, and uh, it's pretty much required of, of, of really good tuba players now to, to learn and play that piece, which if it hadn't been for Roger Bobo, it, it took the instrument to a whole new technical level. Nobody would have known to write the tuba, those extreme registers and those uh, technical things, you know. But anyway, it has become contest pieces. It's, it's, it's on a lot of required lists for auditions and things like that. And uh, pretty much all my graduate students certainly have to play it. And they all know it. And, yeah. uh, and they can play circles around me, so I don't think I'll ever play it again. But what I did <laughs> was 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 very exciting. Hi, so it's a fantastic piece. I mean, it's uh, I think one of his very first concertos for soloist and orchestra. I think he did uh, before that just a, a violin concerto, which is a piece yes. that is currently uh, frequently performed now. But after that, he quit for a few years of writing concert concert stage music, and then he picked up again. In the mid '80s, late '80s, when in Boston, when he had these, right. you know, players that he liked a lot, and uh, the, also this fact that he writes 
for the people. You know, he, he just not writes something out of, right. you know, out of the blue, but he has a player in mind. I think that even when he's writing movie music, like the, the hook solo that you were talking about, he probably knew that it was you that were going to play. Just when he was writing, perhaps in his mind, maybe subconsciously, he's given to, to write in a certain way because he knows the players that's that going to perform. And again, he's, I had heard stories that he didn't like his horn concerto so much or his uh, trumpet concerto. He's very self-critical about his... Yes, he was. And, uh, but once they, they got in the hands of the right players, including the tuba concerto, then people made a lot of music out of it. And uh, he just recorded, actually, the trumpet concerto with uh, Tom Wooten of the LA Philharmonic. Yeah. And uh, they did it all live in the concert stage. There was no tube in it, so I wasn't there. But And, and I heard Jim Thatcher play his uh, horn concerto at USC one time. It absolutely blew me away because of Jim's play. He had a certain flair to his solo playing that, and lots of technique and everything. And he was first on with him for... Yeah, he was first like for many years. For many years, Star Wars again, you know, the last we came over here. And uh, he and I were, well, I worked with Vince first, Vince Rosa, yeah, for quite a few years. And to me, he was the absolute greatest horn player of all time. But yeah, he's a yeah. hundred years old now, I believe, still alive. Uh, and another thing he does frequently is that he uses tuba and oboe together. Yes, he does. And it's very peculiar color. Well, I don't know what motivates him to do that, but uh, the oboe players we've had around me in my whole career have just been phenomenal, and they still are. And I'm, if you can't play with these people, you can't play, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's part of, part of being a playing duets and things like that is, is a compatibility. I'd like to, to talk about, you know, you're also a composer, as you said. You recorded several albums featuring your music for, for brass quintet and also duo, you know, uh, tuba and guitars, but also arrangements of pieces from other composers. You are also a musician uh, for a standard symphony orchestra with the Pacific Symphony, and you also are a teacher. So how much important is for you to be diverse and versatile? It's my whole thing. I mean, that my life has been... You know, being a versatile musician and being uh, covering as many bases as I can and doing it as well as I could. Uh, when I was young, in my twenties, I knew, I knew that the great, the only real artists in music are the composers and the improvisers, which are the two sides of the same coin. Well, I couldn't do either one at the time, and I thought you had to be a Mozart to write a symphony. You had to hear it all in your head. <laughs> so I wasted 30 years. I was almost 50 years old when I started writing. Start out simple and then one after another I started putting on my albums and classical music mostly at first and later on jazz and uh, I got some chops there and I must say sitting on sessions recent years I, I would take a notebook with me everywhere I went and if John Williams wrote something interesting or Dean Howard or something you know like particularly an orchestration like I remember John wrote something for English horn and wicket kind of percussion stuff and, and one or two other instruments. 
And it was haunting what he wrote. So I stole that, if you will, or that idea, that orchestration. I yeah, put it yeah. in one of my pieces. <laughs> and uh, I've, you know, I still only steal from the best. You know, I, I, my last two albums have been uh, jazz duo albums with a yes. great guitar player, John Cittini. And uh, we just finished one last spring. John and I wrote eight of the 16 songs and uh, the jazz album, we're improvising on everything. The first song is the title song, The Light Fantastic, that I composed. And I actually steal from the five notes. It's interesting. I just used four of them. Okay. Body, uh, and that's all I did. Okay. Three or four times in the piece, you know what I mean? You know, it's a homage, you know, it's a kind of things like I that. think so, and I don't think John would at all be upset about it, especially if it was played well, and it was. That's very lovely. <laughs> was playing a, a bass gig with a little bit of tuba with the black, great black musicians and John Hendricks was his name, singer. And we did a show for a whole year. And I was such a miserable jazz soloist on that gig. I just refused to do it after stepping on it a few times on the bass, you know. So I made a point when I was 38 years old to learn to play jazz on the tuba. And I put, I, I, my commitment was 25 years and I kept it up. And every two or three years, I made a new jazz album where I took myself to a new level, became a better improviser. And then once I had stuff in my head, 
then I could become a composer. There's nothing more satisfying to me than improvising because you're in the moment and like in a live concert or even on a recording, you, you're, you got, here you go, you got to play. And then all of a sudden my head was full of stuff and then I, then I could write. It's, I say they're both sides of the same coin, composition, composition. Nobody else are real artists, by the way. <laughs> they're recreative artists, maybe a great opera singer or whatever. But, but it's only the, the people that can actually compose it or, and, or improvise, if you will, which is the same thing, that are the real artists. But. Well, well, musicians are artists too, I think. Well, that's a semantic thing. You know, we are called artists. Yeah, you're right. But you, you know what I mean I, is the fact that I was recently uh, watching the DVD of the uh, concert that John Williams did in Vienna. On the DVD, uh, together with the concert, there is an interview uh, where he talks about The fact that the way he sees music is really a triumvirate. You know, there is a composer, but you need a player right. to make music live. And then you need an audience to listen to it. They, they are definitely connected. In fact, one of the things I've... I'm not one of these guys that sits and writes music and then it sits in a file somewhere. It's, uh, it's got to be played before it actually exists. And, if, and so I make sure that anything I write is going to get some kind of a performance or a recording or something. You know what I mean? I'm mm -hmm. usually writing for a reason. Yes. And uh, I some guys just have tons of stuff they've written over the years, and maybe they'll get discovered or something. I don't know. I can't. I can't do that. I don't have enough years left. So everything I write has a purpose. Oh, 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 oh,
like John or even Jerry Goldsmith or the other greats, you know, Alex North, uh, Elmer Bernstein, you know, other people that you probably played with. They are they went into movie music just because it was probably a job for them. But at the same time, you know, the satisfaction of having your music freshly, you know, off the page being performed is something that gives you a lot of, I guess, a lot of satisfaction. <laughs> so that's probably what pushed them to, to, you know, to strive for excellence. John is one of the last of a breed of composers that you know, started with Franz Waxman and people like that in, uh, in uh, the 30s and stuff. And uh, when recorded film music started, Nicholas Rosa and uh, where they actually wrote for an orchestra. They didn't synthesize it. These days, all the composers they write have to give the producers a synth track, which is just awful. John would never do that. He doesn't have to. But anyway, I'm, I'm really worried that that's, that era is over. People, the young people don't know how to do it. They don't know how to orchestrate. You know, I, I had a very interesting early, my first big film was with two tubas, Tommy and I, and it was for a movie called Taxi Driver. With Bernard Herman? Bernard Herman and after several nights, he was very frail on the music stand, but he, uh, you probably know the story. It was Christmas Eve, I believe. We finished at six o'clock. He went home and died that night. I think it was fortunate I got to play with him one time, you know. Guys like John Williams, they played piano in the studio for these guys, you know? Yeah. And so he, he was there and then he started orchestrating for them. So he, he, had, he was so well grounded in uh, working for other people that it showed up in his music. Absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. kept the tradition going also, what we call the Hollywood sound. You know, it's symphonic, very sophisticated music. You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, show business and and that's it. Well, you know, a lot of people have uh, compared film music to the, it's sort of the opera music of our time, because that's what it is. It's accompaniment to the drama, just like opera is accompaniment to the singer, singing and the, and the libretto and so on. It's, uh, and there's a, quite, a, quite a connection, if you will, to the, those two uh, disciplines. They're both visual and oral. And, and, and to be quite honest, you know, Film music was often kind of poo-pooed by uh, classical music lovers. They would nowadays. It's played by every symphony in the world. All these film scores. I was involved in some of the very first to that at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm -hmm. We learned that they, they developed the technique in the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra for taking film scores and editing them some way so you could play them live. And now it's everywhere. Everybody's doing it. And they're making a lot of money with these yes. orchestras. And I've done a bunch of them myself. Some of them I've had to I've had to play scores like 
couple of years ago, we did uh, Jaws. Oh my, Hollywood, yes. Hollywood Bowl. Did you, did you play the big solo as the, the main title? <laughs> Which, you know, it's, well, I've played it many times and it's like as a concert, little concert piece in orchestras. But in the movie, that solo that goes real high and it's chromatic, Tommy Johnson, of course, did the original. And uh, it is so hard. And it happens about 40 times in the movie. Sometimes it's loud, sometimes it's soft, sometimes it's with a French horn, sometimes it's with an oboe, whatever. I, I sweated bullets playing that thing. <laughs> We had two concerts, I believe, on Friday and a Saturday. Who was the conductor? I think it was David Newman, who has done, he's doing a lot of that these days. I was his tuba player for many years, too. I did a lot of movies, but he did a lot of comedies. Yeah. Comedies always have tubas, you know. <laughs> but, but that's because of the thing that we were saying at the beginning, you know, the, the basso buffo kind of role that <laughs> the tuba has, you know, playing the comedy. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you can get more sophisticated. Tubas depicts Klingons and, and uh, fat guys and <laughs> elephants. And, you know, it's, it's always so many comedies use the tuba. And in cartoons, Hanna-Barbera cartoons, Tommy did most of those, but I played a lot on the tuba. Tuba and bass trombone, by the way. And, uh, and also John Williams did that big tuba So in Star Wars, the, it was one of the earliest ones. Jabba the Hutt? Yes, which, exactly. Which uh, was, wasn't in the movie, unfortunately, I hear. But the tuba player was John uh, Fletcher, who was in the London Symphony. A great, great player, by the way. Passed away very young. <laughs> everywhere play Java. It's just with piano and whatever. They, they play it on concerts and recitals. It's hard. And it's very fun, actually, because it goes It's very chromatic, you know. <laughs> and that's the way that hook solo is. It's sort of like that. And it gets up high, you know. And 
for what it's worth, I, I just did the first Star Wars film with the Pacific Symphony on a summer concert a couple of years ago. I'd never played it before in my life, except the overture or something, you know what I mean, the theme. I never went to those movies because they recorded them in London. They should have been done here. <laughs> they, they've always had good tuba players in the London Symphony and a couple of the other orchestras, absolutely. And they've always had good orchestras in the movies. They've they've been scoring movies since the beginning, pretty yes. much. You know, yeah. and, but uh, in recent years, the tuba players have, like everywhere, the tuba players have become really, really good. And every university in America that has a tuba professor is he's he's a terrific player. I mean, every one of them. Tuba players are connected uh, everywhere because of our international association. And there's usually only one major tuba player in a city, in a big city. He's in a symphony, usually. So there's not that many of us <laughs> other instruments. Yeah, so the community is not that, you know, it's large, but it's not huge. <laughs> well, and we've taken things to a level, thanks again to Bobo and other people that followed him, uh, uh, where the technical limits are not at all compromised, say, the, say a horn or a trombone or a trumpet could do, or even a woodwind, the way John writes, you know. The solo playing is expected to be on the level these days of uh, any instrument. In fact, probably more growth in the tuba in solo literature in my lifetime. From when I was a boy, we had the Hindemith Tuba Sonata and the Juan Williams in the 50s. Otherwise, it was the Sleep in the Deep or some trumpet solo transcribed, you know. It was yeah. dismal. It doesn't happen very often that you have an important solo in a movie. So whenever that happened, and with John Williams, this happened maybe a little bit more often than with other composers. Uh, when you record the score, you, you are not watching the movie. The composer is watching, conducting, but you, you are not. You don't know what's what's happening in the scene or something like that. So you you'll discover where your soul is when you see the movie in the theater. You, that's right. You, I I wouldn't know how things fit until I actually saw the movie. That's just part of it because you're part of the what's going on, you know, you're, and often these days you're just going in and overdubbing something, you know, it's just, and it's, I'm glad my, the better part of my career is, is over in the movies because number one, I don't want that heat of that solo that comes up after lunch and scared because you're only as good as the last job. And if you screw it up, uh, I remember the first movie I did for James Horner, he used to write super high tuba parts, solos or duets with an alto sax or a viola or something. Way up, and the first movie I went on with him was, uh, again, subbing, well, not subbing, I guess it was called for Tommy, and then I was, if I hadn't done well on that, it was went way up to a G-sharp, I remember. And I got through it pretty good. And so I worked for him for 28 years after that. Now, but all along that way, if I had screwed up, I did screw up on one movie one time, about three takes, I couldn't get something. It wasn't particularly that hard either. I was really embarrassed, but he still used me for another 20 years or something, 15 years. So I don't think it was sometimes easy things like coming in on the high note, piano. It's tough for a brass instrument. And that's what I had trouble with that one. Was maybe, I don't have perfect pitch, so I just have to trust my ears in some way. I don't know. But I've been very lucky. I think I don't been so lucky to have shared in my life. Did did, did you play with James also on uh, uh, Casper? Oh yeah, lots of tuba solos. Yep, very fun. One of my favorite films with him was uh, was uh, Batteries Not Included. 
but he did he early on he did some of these these movies with uh, electric tubas and bass trombones and stuff where we were on off duty dividers and it was pretty wild stuff man but uh he got tamed his music tend to be very swimmy melodic and, and uh very emotional music I remember one story about Horner, if you don't mind me saying it. I know Absolutely, please. Horner hated using click tracks. He liked to free conduct. And he also didn't want to use digital when it came out because it wasn't that good. Until they got 96K uh, high-res recording and digital, it was very hard to... It was a big difference between digital and analog recording. So he did analog for many years. And it was a rich sound. Sean Murphy was his engineer, too. One time we had a cue, and he was famous for this kind of stuff. 14-minute cue. Playing in one stretch? One stretch, one take. One, one take. take. He wouldn't cut it. He hated cutting. He didn't think it worked. And by the way, it worked great, and they finally proved it to him. But it took digital, high-res digital to prove it to him. He did this long cue, and it was full of action scenes and... and, and uh, going back and forth maybe there's a love section in it you know what i mean it was a long cue man and, 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 and so we we played okay the whole piece ends with a tuba solo <laughs> and it's not, it wasn't a particularly hard solo but any solo is hard you're all by yourself and you got to play in tune you have to play musically with everybody around you and he's conducting freely you know and uh so he 14 minutes and to get at the end of this long thing and i played a good solo some snare drummer pooped in about 10 bars from the end and we had to make it all over again oh from the top <laughs> from the top i think he made three takes of that and i'm sweating bullets for my little solo at the end every time i, I don't remember what movie it was i should try to figure that one out but it's so hard. He's done 1,500 movies, you know. A lot of them are crap. You don't want to care to remember them or see them. You go back in the, in the early days of the movie business, you don't know who played on what. You try to figure out who played a tuba solo in the 1940s. That's now, hard. If it was, if it was at MGM, you might say it was George Bouzet, or if it was at Warner Brothers, it might be whoever the guys were that were on the orchestras of those days. Yeah. Maybe. But maybe they were sick that day. The same thing with Tommy and I and other people. Sometimes I would go in and do... One of the reasons I did so many movies 
about 1,500 or more, is I would just sometimes go in and just do one day or even a half a day. Tommy couldn't say they would work on a film and he had five days. And then they didn't get done and they say, well, we need another day next week. Uh, you know, well, I'm not available. I got another job. So I would, I get a lot of those kind of gigs. And uh, so I can say I worked on a lot of films. <laughs> many, I didn't do all of them, you know. Depends on how the work. And, and going back, there was a film made in the 50s, a great, great film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. There were five tubas on it. And I, I know some of them because I've talked to some of these guys. I, I interviewed a whole bunch of old guys before they passed away. But even they don't remember all the guys who were on those sessions. Or different days there would be different players, you know. And so somebody could say, well, I worked on Jurassic Park. Well, maybe they worked one day as second tuba or something, you know. I did all of Jurassic Park. There were two tubas on it, but I had different second tubas. Tommy first, and then Doug Tornquist some, and Norm Pearson, I believe. Gene Picorni actually was in town that year. He played on one or two days with me. Oh, fantastic. The, 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 the Chicago Symphony to yeah, the principal too, but yeah, he's an LA guy, but he, he, he played one year with the LA Philharmonic, mm -hmm. but he was in town. But so he can say, I worked on Jurassic Park, but it doesn't mean he was the principal. It doesn't mean he had solo. It doesn't mean he had, uh, uh, because of these things, even close encounters for several years, it was just confusion, whether it was me or Tommy. And he thought it was him, and I thought it was me, and then he thought it was both of us. We actually went to the premiere of it together, thinking we both did it, parts of it. Then when it was clear that I did it, then that was hard on Tommy. And, you know, but I I don't like doing it, but I have to sort of brag a little bit about things in my career or, or things get mixed up. Selective memory is uh, interesting. you have one favorite moment or you know memories about your work with John well it's hard for me to pick out one moment with John there's been so many good ones uh, we did the remake of uh, ET with the with the orchestra I played in Jim Thatcher and so on so that was great to play that Tommy had played the original which was great too that's a great memory uh, of course close encounters but at the time I didn't think it was that who knew what you know what it was going to be And do, and do you have a, a favorite among his scores? I mean, or some favorites among, or some work that you feel particularly, uh, no, attached to, or that you like particularly to to perform, or, or just to listen? That's again, a, that's a hard one, you know, because just about every, you know, he wrote a lot of beautiful scores too, you know, with very light orchestration. We didn't play a lot of notes on them, but they were, they were beautiful things, you know, and uh, he he had wrote such sensitive music. Uh, it's very hard, you know. We've mentioned the films that probably were the most close, probably Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Those are probably stand out in my mind. Mm -hmm. 
that's a fantastic music because um I mean the music is so idiomatic in the sense that it captures the feelings of the Christmas kind of feel but there's also this beautiful um tone of comedy that is it plays the comedy but not too much if you know what I mean I think John well, working with Spielberg of course he, he he they just there's so much passion in both, both of them do and so they work together so well you know what I mean it's, it's a partnership that never wanes you know what I mean I'm so grateful I'm sure it wasn't intended for me particularly, but the close encounters, that, that conversation. Spielberg and John Williams came up with the idea of communicating with aliens by music, which is, you know, most alien movies like are, are violent, but it's a peaceful movie. And it's, if you think about it, communicating with music is it's, it's, it's everywhere. Music is physics. The Overtone series is in every sound. And it would be understandable by aliens, no matter how different they were from us. And then on top of that, though, the, to have the tuba be the voice, a peaceful voice, if you will, even though it sounds kind of violent at times, but it's, to have the tuba play those five notes, and they're, they're overtone, they're all part of the pentatonic scale, these, these five notes right here, you know? And I just feel so privileged to, to have been able to have my name attached to it in some way, and that, that he would think of the tuba number one, you know, well, why the tuba, you know, but he, like you say, he liked the tuba. And also it, it carries this message of, of, of peace, like you said, but also of uh, hope as well, because- It does. Because at the beginning, the dialogue is, you know, like two people who are not understanding each other, but slowly they start to make no notes together and starting to complete you know the musical phrase together and then they just start to play play in the sense also to have fun those guys, Spielberg and Williams, are similar kind of people. They're very, they, they have the connection to the world so good. You know, Spielberg did uh, Schindler's List. Yes. Which was so personal to him and his family and his, his ancestors. Those kind of feelings, and John Williams is very similar. They're the right kind of people we should have in the world, you know. And so I'm so connected, being about so proud to have had all those years with him. And also Stephen... Uh, seems like uh, he had always so much fun coming to the recording session and every other musician told me that he likes to take pictures and every session and films John while he was, was working with you. He, he would take a little mini cam around and, and make all kinds of things when we were rehearsing and stuff. And I don't know whether 
and whatever happened to all those films, but he's got miles and miles of film somewhere in his, in his possessions and uh, of, and all of us, he'd come around and get a close up on me or the tuba. Oh, boys, it's Mr. Clyde. Accent two and three, please. So we have more rhythm. Try to concentrate. Don't be trying to be disturbed by Stevens. Filming. It's like having a, a, a camera in your bathroom, you know, when you're taking a shower, you know. I'm glad I'm dressed. What will be, according to you and your experience working with him, what will be John's legacy in the future of music? I mean, what, what will be his place? As I said at the very beginning, I think he's the greatest living musician and maybe the greatest musician of all time. Uh, that's a, that's a hefty, hefty statement to make, but uh, his influence on the world is way more than anybody, including Bach or anybody. And he's reached and touched so many people. It's, I don't know how... You know how anybody could ever top him in a way you know what i mean and he has gotten the respect of classical composers now too which i know he was a little sensitive about i believe and that's why he tried to write concert music and concerti and so on i think he he sort of needs that respect of that community but he's got it he's got it when when dudamel and other famous conductors conduct play his music at the hollywood bowl or whatever they're respecting him you know the story about him with the Boston Pops, probably, don't you? But he was conducting there, and he was getting a lot of flack from uh, the musicians because they poo-pooed the film business. And, and as traditionally, classical musicians always had, they thought it was a lesser thing than what they did. And to an extent, it was. I mean, there was a lot of bad music written, poor music, and but in John's hands, they were great. And he actually had a... They were... You know, he'd rehearse a piece he wrote or something, even though it was hard. They just didn't respect him. They'd talk and do anything. And he finally had a sit-down meeting with him and told him, I heard, I heard he was emotional about it, too. That the whole orchestra, and he just says, I've been here for three years or something, and, and you, you don't respect my music. And the orchestra, he won them over in, in a way. So now they're super proud of having their affiliation with him. He goes to Tangwood every summer. As yeah. a house there. Now all these orchestras are playing film music, and some of it, like John's music particularly, is hard. And and they can, all of a sudden they have the respect for the studio musicians, you know. Yes. And uh, it, that makes me feel good because I, even though I do play opera and symphony a lot, it's, it's still not quite the, the best orchestra in town. Is not the LA Philharmonic. It's John Williams Orchestra.
John Williams, he has a style, I feel, this is my opinion, of course. Mm -hmm. He can break almost anything, but there's a certain orchestral sound in his music, the way he voices things, orchestrates them, and it's, it almost, and certain things he does, harmonic things that you hear in all his music, and I guess you could say, or must, much of it. Of course, the Star Wars films, which we only did the last three here, I'm convinced of something. This is John Williams' ring cycle. I agree. Bob Wagner wrote uh, 16 hours of, uh, of opera, which I got to play one time, thank mm. God, uh, once in my life. But uh, the ring cycle is four operas and it's 16 hours of music. And when I listened to that so carefully, he wrote he wrote motifs. They call them light motifs for all 41 characters in the operas. And they carried through all of them. And to me, I figured that Richard Wagner wrote 41 themes, and then he spent the other six, 15 hours writing arrangements where he mixed them all together. After playing it, I, that's just my opinion. I don't know the truth of it. But to me, Star Wars nine movies is John Williams 16 hours of uh, things around that many hours of music. And especially the fact that it, it's something that keeps, I mean, almost half of his life. I mean, from the first one is 1977. The last one is last year. It's more than 40 years. It's a large part of his uh, musical life has been, you know, accompanied by these movies and scores. That That's unique, I think. It's very unique. Nobody else has ever done anything like that. And uh, most people don't do more than one one repeat of a movie and John didn't have other things either but this was his whole life and and for that's a good reason to say that he's likely the greatest musician that ever lived because it's even as uh, uh, and I have a feeling I mean there are going to be uh, Star Wars uh, marathons just like there are uh, Wagner's ring cycle marathons. You can really turn off the, the the screen and just listen to the music, and you you really understand the story. You don't need you know the, hearing the dialogues and so on, and that's why I think in the future uh, probably there will be marathons like the Wagner's uh, Ring Cycle. I think in the future we will play you know all the nine Star Wars films live with the orchestra, and that's quite an experience. Yeah, I do. I agree, and uh, we've probably seen the video of, of John the very last session of Star Wars 9. That was the last day. And I was actually subbing for Doug on that day. He was okay. playing with the Philharmonic somewhere in Europe, I believe. And uh, I uh, got to play that last session and it was special. We Because one of the things we did, they have the original people from Star Wars 1 there. Producers okay. and some of the people from the studios and stuff. Spielberg, of course, and some of the other people that were involved in the production of that. And they played the original theme for them. And I'm probably recorded it again. I don't know. But it was all part of a double session. And then we had champagne at lunchtime that John provided or his production company did. And they did all this filming and they came around and we were all in the film. I was in the film. And even though I wasn't his principal tuba player at that time, I was so honored to be at the end of this thing. And someone told me that on the, that day, on the very last day of The Last Star Wars, uh, he uh, took some time to, you know, to stop and talk to every 
section of the orchestra and you know and also the fact that he likes to give some of his time to people who maybe just want to say you know thank you because there are a lot of youngsters in the orchestra now because that started playing thanks to his music you know oh yeah he was always this is the way he was he would he'd often come around to the low brass and chat with us or the trumpets or you know the brass section he would chat with us and everybody it was john it wasn't anything you know, it was he was just one of the guys you know what i mean yeah i feel like we've been together for a very very long time i really will miss seeing you i wish we had more to play but i cannot thank you enough for this opportunity to be with you bravo thank you for your artistry and for your obvious love of music thanks so much I can sort of sum up something about John Williams that might, I'm sure everyone you're talking to probably feels the same, but I feel blessed that he was in my life or that I was in his life because I, like I said, I don't know of any better musician and he, he does everything. He was a good jazz musician, which really turns me on. Nobody has his breadth of experiences. I have the greatest respect for him and I'm so proud that you're doing this. Oh, thank you. And uh, who knows where he's going now? He's he's uh, he's still doing some projects. I know it's it's a brilliant life. He's had a brilliant life, and the whole world is way better off for him being part of it. wonderful, lovely way to, to cap off uh, our conversation together, Jim. Thank you very much for your time together yeah. with me. Well, thank you again. It's been a very, very great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks to Jim Self for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles and podcast episodes. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams Podcast. Yeah.